Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. John 21. Uh, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore. Full of large fish, 153 of them, even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie Tie you, tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them, the one who had learnt, leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him and said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So this rumour spread to the brothers and sisters that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die, but if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. Thanks, mate, for reading. Hey, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Uh, I'm Simon, uh, and we are 
kind of wrapping up a bit of an Easter kind of, I guess, Easter series. We've been in the Gospel of John uh, here at City Light North Adelaide um, across the Easter kind of period. Uh, so we've been studying John uh, 18, 19, Good Friday, John 20 on Easter Sunday. And today we're kind of just going to wrap up this sort of series, this section, by looking at John 21 together. Um, you'll notice around the place, uh, there are little copies of John's Gospel. We've been putting these in the pews or in the seats across Easter. Um, if you're here tonight and uh, perhaps you're unfamiliar with Jesus and the church and Christianity and all those things, um, we would love you uh, not just to become connected to City Light North Adelaide, we want you to connect with Jesus. And so um, we connect with Jesus through his word by the Spirit. And uh, so you can follow along, page 62 is where we're on tonight, uh, John 21, and uh, you're welcome to take these home with you, read the whole thing, it's a great read, um, and we pray that you would meet Jesus as you go about that. Um, but that's what we're doing tonight, John 21. Um, tonight's sermon is all about identity. Um, who are we and what is our mission? And I think that's what we discover in John 21. Um, who are you? Who are you? And who are we, that is, us collectively as Christian people? Um, I know we just had a break for a few minutes to chat amongst ourselves, but I want you to turn to the person next to you and ask that question to the person sitting next to you. Who are you? If you get in first, then you don't have to talk and sort of disclose anything. Um, So I'm going to give you a minute or two. Turn to the person next to you. Who are you? And see what they have to say. Go for it. See what happens. I won't get anyone to share straight up, you know, who am I or things like that. But um, I think it's an interesting question. Like, how do you define yourself? Who am I? Who are you? Who are we as a church as well? There are heaps of different parameters, I reckon, you can use to kind of define yourself. You could, uh, you know, you could say, I am, this is my name, for example. That can define you. Um, You could say, maybe your age could help define you. You know, I'm young or I am old or I'm on the cusp of something. That's probably where I am right now, right? I turned 40 a couple of weeks ago and I don't really know where I sit. I'm young, still young. Um, you know, are you, uh, are you a family person? Are you married? Are you widowed? Are you unmarried? Um, you know, that's to describe who you are. Um, where do you come in birth order? You know, I'm the firstborn, proudly. No, I'm not, but you know, like you might be that person or you might be the second or you might be that middle child. You know, and with all that comes with that. You know, where do you come from? What's your ethnicity? That could be sort of helping define you. I'm Indian, Lebanese, Persian, British, Asian, Australian, whatever it might be, Italian, you you name it. Um, You know, you might define yourself by the language you speak. Um, I speak English. I'm an L1. That's I've got one language. But maybe you're an L2, L3, L4. My grandfather on my mum's side was an L7. He spoke seven languages. Um, I didn't inherit any of his ability to speak other languages whatsoever. Maybe your educational background, you know, primary, tertiary, secondary. Maybe you're someone who's unfortunately missed out on education. Um, unlikely here in this country, but that's possible. Um, your income, that can define who you are. Are you under 60? Are you 60 or 100? Are you 100 plus K? Um, whatever that means and however that defines who you are. Um, what's your address? I have a friend who just recently moved to Norwood and she said, I have moved up in the world. Um, <laughs> there you go. What tribe do you belong to? conservative, are you liberal, are you labour, are you goth, are you hipster? Um, I discovered the other day exactly who I am. I am Normcore. Um, That's who I am legitimately. This is what they say. Normcore finds liberation in being nothing special. Someone who knows they're just one in seven billion. Um, That's me. I'm kind of Normcore. 
And important in our day and perhaps in our age, you know, your sexuality. Um, Are you heterosexual? Are you bisexual? Are you homosexual? Um, What do you, who do you identify as? What is your identity? It's, It's kind of complex, isn't it? And who are we? Who are we here at City Light North Adelaide? Christians living in this city, who are we? Uh, Let me pray, and we're going to study this passage and hopefully find out some clues to who we are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you for bringing us together to this night. Uh, Father, we praise you and thank you that your word is good and faithful and true. And we pray now as we study it, Father, we pray that by your spirit and through your word we would see Jesus. We pray that by your spirit and through your word we would hear Jesus. And by your spirit and through your word we would love Jesus. So open our eyes, Father, open our ears, soften our hearts, that we might hear, see, and love Jesus tonight and find our true self in him, the true human. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in John's Gospel. Uh, We've jumped into the tail end of John's Gospel. And, you know, there are kind of two emphases that we come across in the Gospel of John. We're not going to read the whole thing tonight, but if you were to kind of go through the Gospel of John, you'd come across these two emphases. First, you'd meet that John is all about Jesus. Uh, He highlights the, the person who Jesus is, the work of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. That's what you find in John's Gospel. And the second emphasis is the Christian community. Who are the people that kind of gather around, are formed around Jesus? That's who you meet, our identity and our mission. They're the two focuses. And throughout the the narrative of John's Gospel, the story that unfolds of Jesus' personal work in his life, Peter and John, two apostles, two disciples, kind of are the kind of key characters you might follow along. And John and Peter, John being the disciple whom Jesus loved, they kind of become representative of the new community who forms around the risen Lord Jesus Christ, formed by Christ, saved by Christ, and then they gather around this this new community. Peter is one key character. He's foundational, he's unrepeatable, but he's a representative of the new people of God as well. And interestingly, in this final chapter, John 21, Peter and John are kind of zoomed in on two key characters in this narrative. We know a bit about Peter. Right? Peter was first called, was the first one called and named by Jesus in this gospel, John 1:42. Peter was the one in John 13, verse 36, who made the definitive commitment to follow Jesus. Um, Peter said this, "Lord, where are you going?" He said, "Where am I? Where I'm going?" Jesus said, "You cannot come." Why not? Said Peter. "I'll lay down my life for you." This sort of definitive commitment to follow Jesus. But what happened to Peter? In John 13, verse 38, you remember Jesus predicted that Peter would deny ever knowing Jesus. And the prediction became true. It was actualized in John 18, verse 15. We read this on Good Friday. Peter denies Christ three times. He makes the definitive commitment, then makes a definitive denial, and Peter becomes the definitive failure. That's what he is. And he's representative of the new community of God's people. And he will be representative of what this community is to be and what its mission is to be in the world. And that's what we look at tonight in John 21. We arrive at John 21, page 62 of the little Bibles that are in the, book, in the pews. And the, tell, the text tells us, right, if you, as Josh was reading it, you heard the disciples, Jesus has risen from the dead. And what are the disciples doing? They've gone fishing. And that should be scandalous to us, right? 
In chapter 1, what were they doing when they were called to follow Christ? They were fishermen fishing. And they were called out of that kind of enterprise to follow the Lord Jesus. And when Jesus died, okay, maybe there is an excuse for them to go back to the nets. It's all been pretty catastrophic and in, you know, intense. Maybe they see everything's kind of fallen apart. But Peter was there. He knows the tomb was empty. He knows Jesus is alive. Peter was there in the upper room when Jesus you know, showed the hands and feet and the side, risen from the dead. Why are they back fishing? How is this possible? You kind of might be thinking, something's kind of maybe not right. They're, you know, what's going on? And again, our representative leader, Peter, is the key. Uh, chapter 21, verse 3, Peter says, I'm going fishing, he said to them. And everyone else goes, we're coming with you. And off they go. Interestingly, we're told there that they go out at night. Um, apparently, fishing is best done at night. I can't stay up by about, after about 9.30pm at night, so I never go out fishing at night. But, but why are they back fishing? How is this possible? And it's at this point that I want to suggest to you that the text before us tonight, John 21, teaches us four things about who we are in Christ. The four things are these. We are a loved people. We are a forgiven people. We are a called people. And we are an imperfect people. Four things. Tonight's message is just a reflection on kind of those four things. We're a loved people, forgiven people, called people, and imperfect people. Firstly, we're a loved people. We are a loved people. You see, in this passage, what do we see Jesus doing? Jesus is coming after these men, doesn't he? He comes after this man, Peter. And this is not new in the Gospel of John. This has been the pattern all the way through. In chapter 1, verse 11, when we're introduced to this word, this pre-existent deity, the key idea, the key concept is that Jesus came, God came He's the one who comes for us. Or in John chapter 3, verse 16, those familiar words, for God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son. He comes. He gives. This is not an unfamiliar thing. Jesus comes after them. He takes the initiative, and he's the one in pursuit of these people. We're a loved people. That's central to who we are as Christians. God has sought us out. He's come after us. When we were following the ways of the world, when we were following the ways of the devil, when we were going back to our old ways, when we preferred our former life, he was the one who pursued us. And this should be so clear because chapter 15, verse 13 of John's Gospel says, no one has, this is a classic Anzac Day phrase, isn't it? No one has greater love than this than someone would lay down his life for his friends. That was before Jesus died. Now we know he has died. Greater love has no man. He came for you and he died for you and for me. And that's to say nothing at all, right, about the tenderness and the kindness and the strength and the jealousy that is evident in all of Jesus' personal interactions with people throughout the gospel. God pursues us with an ineffable love, with an insatiable love. Who are we? We are a loved people. That's what it means to be a Christian. It is to be loved. And what's so fantastic about this narrative is that all the way through, you see these subtleties in the personal interactions that Jesus has with Peter in this story? You know, in that he comes to where Peter is, 
on the water as a fisherman. Jesus stands on the shore and calls out to him. He comes to Peter despite his fears. Can you imagine the moment, right, when when Peter is on the boat fishing and he realises that it's Jesus, his Lord, not just his Lord, but the Lord of like everything, the cosmos and the universe, who's risen from the dead. And Peter then probably has pause to reflect on his failure. Don't you think Peter would have been just a little bit afraid? Here is God in our midst and Peter's going, and I'll let him down. But Jesus comes after him despite Peter's fears. It's, it's a really beautiful, subtle approach. He calls out to Peter, and and beautifully, Jesus invites him to a a breakfast on the beach. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, if if there's one thing I would love in the world, it's to have breakfast with Jesus, I don't know, on on the beach, like on a beautiful beach on Kangaroo Island or something. I reckon that'd be great. But it's not, you know, come before me and sit down, and I'm going to interrogate you with a lamp over your head so you feel and you sweat. You know, it's it's Jesus comes to him, and, and there's a meal. And then they go for a walk along the beach and have a conversation. You know, my testimony, right, is that this is what God's love is like. It's nuanced. It's subtle. He knows you. He knows your needs. All those things we talked about. He knows your age, your gender, your family status, your income, your ethnicity, your language, your sexuality. He knows all those things about you better than you know them about yourself. And when God loves you as he does, it is a nuanced, subtle, personal, intense love of you. It's not the person next to you that he loves, although he loves them as well, but he loves you as you are. He loves you. I love this quote from Stott. He writes this in his book, Basic Christianity. Many people visualise a God who sits comfortably on a distant throne, remote, aloof, uninterested and indifferent to the needs of mortals, until it may be that they can badger him into taking action on their behalf. Such a view is wholly false. The Bible reveals a God who, long before it even occurs to man to turn to him, while man, while human being, is still lost in darkness and sunk in sin, takes the initiative, rises from his throne, lays aside his glory and stoops to seek until he finds him. This is the God we meet in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Gospel of John. We're a loved people. I hope you know that. And we're a forgiven people. That's the second aspect we see tonight. We're a loved people. We're a forgiven people. You see, like when you come to the John 21, and there's you know, John, and, and, and there's Peter, and there's Jesus, what, what was it that Peter really deserved? His fears were well-founded, I reckon. What did he deserve? Of course he'd be aware. I denied Jesus three times. He warned me ahead of time that I would do that. I should have prepared myself. I should have steeled myself against the challenge, but I failed. Now God is in our midst and, and God should come after me, not with love, but with vengeance. I mean, it's been a while ago, but did anyone watch the TV show Revenge on television when it was on? There was a series on, on it was. I never watched it, but I think it would be soul-destroying to watch that show. But I'll leave it up to you if you want to go and chase it up later. But it was crazy. But you know, what did Peter deserve? It's what Peter deserved, wasn't it? Revenge, retribution, the full wrath of God to be heaped upon him. But no, he gets a meal and he gets a walk with the God who is there. 
But there is no doubt that there are reminders at every point along the way reminding Peter of his failure and his unwillingness to follow Christ. Do you think that when Peter made it to shore after his 100-metre freestyle dash to the beach that he noticed that there was a charcoal fire burning on the beach? I reckon the smoke and the smell of the charcoal, I was smelling it outside just before, it was beautiful, would just be wafting up into his nose and, and, and bringing back all these memories of another charcoal fire. In the Gospel, in the Bible, charcoal fire only turns up twice. Uh, the charcoal fire that Peter stood around when the, the place where Jesus was being tried and, and questioned by the high priest and the leaders, where he was warming himself by the fire when Jesus is inside being interrogated for things he'd never done. And where three times in that place he denied ever knowing Jesus. The memories. And, and then he swims to shore and discovers another charcoal fire and the smell and the waft up in, and it would have brought back memories, wouldn't it? And then they, he takes that walk, right? Jesus and Peter go for a walk down the beach. And he asks him a question three times. Do you love me? A definite reminder of what Peter had done in this whole scene. Yes, Jesus has pursued him. Yes, Jesus has pursued you with an insatiable, ineffable love, but it's not a forgetful love. The nature of Jesus' love for us, you know, our, our relationship with him is not characterized by denial or forgetfulness. This is very significant. The nature of our relationship with Jesus is not about acceptance or minimization of wrong. It's critical. Jesus doesn't deny, doesn't forget, doesn't accept, does not minimize. He forgives. That's the difference. He, he, he confronts our sin. He doesn't just overlook it and accept it and go, oh, whatever, just sweep it under the carpet. He, he confronts it and he deals with it. He forgives. This... We mess up forgiveness all the time, I think, with the idea of forgive and forget. Because forgiveness, this side of heaven, there will be forgetting in heaven, I promise. But this side of heaven, forgiveness is not about forgetting. In fact, forgiveness is a kind of remembering, I reckon. And repentance, our side of the equation, is a kind of remembering. It's the right kind of remembering, but a remembering nonetheless. You see, God's love for us cost him dearly. Any loving in a broken world is a costly love. A woman that I, was, I got to know at a church I used to serve at, um, her marriage broke down, divorced from her husband, and then her husband remarried. And this lady, amidst all the trauma of that experience, Love the Lord Jesus, wanted this woman to know the Lord Jesus, her ex-husband's new wife, and so somehow got the courage and the strength and the veracity to invite her to church and sat next to her in church for the duration of a service and so she could hear the gospel. It was extremely costly to her. I remember her coming home to our house for lunch after and the tissue box was on the table. It was, just, it was heart-wrenching for her. It's costly. It cost her dearly. And for God to love you, it cost him dearly. It was sacrificial. We need to remember that our forgiveness is based upon costly love. Yeah, that's what we do, right? Every Sunday when we gather together as God's people, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
It's not about remembering so that we feel bad about ourselves. Um, you know, if the, you are trapped in sin and you're feeling pangs of guilt and things like that, that probably is something that you need to wrestle with and perhaps come to the Lord tonight and confess that and he will take away that sin and deal with it. But the, the Lord's Supper, when we come together, is not about promoting guilt. It's about promoting the right kind of remembering as we remember that God's love for us is a costly love. That our forgiveness cost the Son of God his life. Jesus doesn't deny, forget, accept, minimize or ignore. He forgives our sin. And these two realities, right, they come together in one of my favourite songs. It's pretty daggy. You might not even know him. His name's Michael W. Smith. But uh, I'm not going to sing the song. Um, You'll be pleased with that. But I'm going to read the lyrics. They're kind of wonderful. They're on the screen. And this is my confession. I have been unfaithful. I have been unworthy, I have been unrighteous, and I have been unmerciful. I've been unreachable, I've been unteachable, I have been unwilling, and I have been undesirable. Sometimes I have been unwise. I've been undone by what I'm unsure of, but because of you and all that you went through, I know that I have never been unloved. We can sing it next week maybe, you know. Just to follow it up. Now, we're a, we're a loved people. We're a loved people. We're a forgiven people. And thirdly, we're a called people. It's the third key aspect of this passage. We're a called people. You see, Peter, this definitive, made this definitive commitment. He then made this definitive denial and becomes a definitive failure. And yet Peter, by the grace of God, through the work of Jesus, is called into a new service of his master. He he can't go back. That's the whole tenor of this passage, right? He can't go back. You see, the love and forgiveness and calling of Jesus are inseparable. And in this passage, in this little conversation, in this interaction with Jesus and the Apostle Peter, we see love, forgiveness and calling all kind of intertwined. So you see it in these three statements that are made by Jesus coming up on the screen. You know, Jesus says, Do you love me, Peter? Feed my lambs. Do you love me, shepherd my sheep? Do you love me, feed my sheep? Now, of course, the task that Jesus gives to Peter is specific to him. He becomes an apostle. He's foundational. His ministry is unrepeatable. What Peter goes on to do, we build our sort of church and foundations upon. But the call to Peter, our representative, is also a call to us. We are given a task when we come into relationship with Jesus. And the task is to do the Father's work. This is not new in John's Gospel. John chapter 1, verse 33, the very beginning and basis of Jesus' relationship with his disciples was to come, follow me, do what I'm doing. In John chapter 13, verse 15, you are to do what I have done. John chapter 13, verse 34, well known. Jesus says, I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you, you sometimes ought to consider... No, he says, you must love one another. Why? Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my followers if you love one another. And it's the whole final speech of Jesus before he goes to the cross. Jesus says, this is what I have been doing, this is what you're going to go on and do as well. Chapter 20, verse 21, the same again. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you, disciples. 
Now, I don't, I don't want to push this too much, but I think, I think it's there, so stick with me for a second. When Jesus says to Peter, you know, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep, and there's kind of no difference there. The repetition is for emphasis. I want to suggest that the sheep that Peter, or Jesus is talking about are not necessarily only look after Christian people. You know, they're the people that you need to look after, Peter. I, I think the whole setup for this, I think, is back in John chapter 10 when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. You know, the sheep know and they hear my voice. And then Jesus goes on to say, right, there are sheep out there that are not yet kind of, kind of in the fold. That the feeding of God's sheep is intentional towards those who are already in the fold to love them, to care for them, to shepherd them. You know, if you're a pastor, it's me. If you're thinking about being a pastor, that's the job. Shepherd the flock, care for the flock. We don't like being called sheep, though, do we? It's not a very nice way to... But that's who we are. We are people who need some help. But I think there's also an intention here for Peter and, by extension, you and me, not just to love the people who are already in the fold. It pushes us, I think, to see that the intention is to... Find people who are not yet in the fold and to bring them in. What is the ministry of the church? What is the ministry of City Light North Adelaide? It is to love God's people deeply and sacrificially and long-termly, all that sort of stuff. But it's also to love the lost. In the trust that God will call his people in from among the lost, out there across Adelaide to the ends of the earth. This is Christian ministry. Feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. This will cost us. But we're called to bear the cost of loving each other and other people in the world. And it ought to be intuitive to you and me, right? Jesus loved us and it cost him his life. You're called to love his people and love the lost. What will it cost you and me? I'm sorry to say, but your life. It cost Peter his life. And Jesus goes on to kind of say to Peter in John chapter 21, what sort of death he will die. Peter, ultimately, this miserable failure who turns out to be the foundation rock of the church, he, he goes on to die a horrible death, crucified upside down under Nero for preaching Christ. Apparently, when the soldiers were about to put him on the cross and nail him to the cross, he said, I don't feel worthy to die the same way my saviour and master did. So the soldiers got creative and turned it upside down. So he was crucified upside down, as far as we know. A violent sort of martyr's death. But maybe that's not what we're facing, unlikely in Adelaide, right? But it will cost you your life. And anything less is like climbing back into the fishing boat. I think we talked about this last week, and it's been on my mind to kind of just reiterate it. I think one of the things that, you know, it may not cost us our life, but I think it actually may cost us kind of keeping up with everyone else that we hang out with. You know, I think following Jesus, putting wholly following Jesus, believing in the resurrection of Christ means that it's going to be hard for you and me to kind of keep up with everyone else around us, our colleagues, our workmates, our friends. It's going to be hard for us to drive the same cars, live in all the same suburbs, because, well, A, we're not living for this world, but hopefully, B, we're giving generously to the work of the gospel and therefore we don't have money to, I don't know, buy the latest 745 BMW or... I don't know. It's costly. We're a loved people. We're a forgiven people. 
We're a called people, and yet we are, need I even say it aloud, we're an imperfect people. We're an imperfect people. It's fascinating, I think, Peter, in this conversation. The Lord of all comes to him. He was afraid, no doubt, but discovers that Jesus loves him, uh, that Jesus wants to be with him, that Jesus wants to use him in the mission, that he forgives him, calls him into gospel ministry. It's huge. It's enormous what's happening for Peter. And in that very moment of his calling, what does Peter do? He turns around. He's walking down the... I think it's beautiful, right? He's walking down. You know, Jesus... One really quick thing. Jesus reinstates Peter, forgives Peter, brings him back in, calls him into ministry by a beautiful walk along the beach. I think it's just, you know, if you are in a place where you, you know, we're in church, we're imperfect people, and we sometimes need to call people to account and identify stuff, it's a beautiful picture of how we are to do that. I think we just, it was a private conversation as Jesus brought him back in, confronted him with his sin, brought him back in. It's wonderful. But as they're walking down, and you know, again, he's, he's loved, he's forgiven, he's called. And then as they're walking down, what does Peter do? He goes, but what about that guy? I mean, what about him? What's going to happen with him? It doesn't sound quite that bad, right, out of Peter's mouth. I mean, it sounds kind of reasonable. Like, you've called me into ministry. I need some help. What about him? I don't know. Maybe that's what he's thinking. But, it, but Jesus' response, I think, is where we understand that perhaps it was just a bit of a flawed thing to do. Jesus says in verse 22, If I want him to remain alive until I come, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. I think Jesus kind of sees into Peter's heart. In this momentous, loved, forgiven and called moment, Peter is just fundamentally faulty and a bit flawed. He's an imperfect man. And we're an imperfect church. Of course, that's implied, right, in our need for forgiveness. None of us are perfect. But it's ongoing, right? None of us are perfect. We're imperfect people. And that's critical for us to remember and to know. And, you know, our imperfections are multiple, right? We are weak. We're physically weak, mentally weak, emotionally weak. We're broken and scarred. Scarred and broken by all the things that have happened to us in the past. All the way other people have injured us, the way we've injured other people or all the sins that we have done, that brokenness that will remain with us until we meet Jesus and live with him forever in the new creation. And if you, I don't know, if you ever think, right, that you can act perfectly, that you can be a perfect person, anything that you do, you need to analyse it and say, in order for there to be true integrity and, and goodness, you know, the goal of the act, the act itself, and the motive of the act all need to be in sort of a perfect union. So it's, you know, I've, I've done this absolutely perfectly. And I can promise you that I'm up here tonight and, and I'm preaching and I think that's a good thing. The act of preaching is good. As I prepare and think about it, my, my goal is that you would hear the word of God and that you would love Jesus be convinced of the beauty and the majesty and the holiness and the purity and the goodness of God and therefore you just want to seek to follow him. But there's also a part of me, right, that kind of wants you to like this. You know, a part of me that actually kind of wants you to like me as well. You know, I'm not selfless in this preaching thing. You know, what about my motive? There's a little part of me, right, that thinks, well, if I preach well at church, at City Light, you know, and 
That'll kind of work towards the basis of my right standing with God, you know. There's, I mean, I'm a, there's brokenness in me. Scarring is a weakness in all of us. We're imperfect people. And so we need ongoing help in the Christian life. Of course, it isn't in this chapter, but we, we come across it earlier in John's Gospel. We come across the counsellor, the Holy Spirit who God, will, who, gave to, who God gave to us when Jesus rose again. The Spirit who leads his people into truth, convicts us of our sin and unrighteousness where it's necessary, gives us strength in times of trial, and the Holy Spirit has come. Why? Why is there the Holy Spirit? He's there to unite us to Christ and all that he has done for us. He's also there because we're imperfect people and we're not perfect yet. We need the Holy Spirit to be at work in us, making us more like Jesus, identifying our imperfections, and as he works in us, making us more like Christ. The Spirit is there to unite us to Christ and to get us to the end so we will indeed see Jesus and enjoy him forever. Salvation doesn't work any other way. We're a loved people. We're a called people. We're a forgiven people, but we're an imperfect people. So as, I don't know, I like that from Joe tonight, as we kind of start the new year, the new year as Christians, as we celebrate the the resurrection of Jesus, it's good for us to come to the end of John's Gospel and be reminded of those four things. We're a loved people. If you're here tonight and you don't yet know that you're a loved person, then I encourage you to speak with me, talk to someone tonight. We're a loved people. We're a forgiven people. It took the costly life of Jesus, the beautiful life of Jesus, to redeem us and to bring us back to God. We're a called people, called into this wonderful business of making Jesus known, of bringing the lost in, and yet we're an imperfect people who desperately need the Spirit to be at work in us to make us more like Christ, and we need each other. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the reminder in John 21 of these four things about who you've made us to be in Christ. Father, we thank you that we are loved, loved by you. Uh, Father, we praise you that your love has pursued us. Father, you came from glory into our broken world that we might be right with you. Father, we thank you for forgiveness. We praise you for calling us into ministry, into making Jesus known. And we praise you, Father, that despite our imperfections, that doesn't get in the way of your work in us and in your world. We praise you tonight that you use imperfect people like us, to point others to the perfect one, to Jesus. And Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name tonight. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.